0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Chicago. Katie, you sure are moving around a lot these days.
1: You know, I've I've decided that 2022 is going to be my nomadic year, so we'll see where I go next.
0: Well, speaking of moving around, and I hope listeners will pardon that awful segue, uh, a lot of uh, world leaders are currently... um, Arriving in Madrid, Spain, as we record this uh, for a very highly anticipated uh, NATO summit. Uh, We don't usually talk about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization on this podcast, but this time uh, as NATO meets, uh, there is a particularly stark focus uh, on the Indo-Pacific Uh, And of course, it's not just the Indo-Pacific. The alliance is meeting, of course, against the backdrop of Russia's war against Ukraine, uh, which poses in many ways one of the most significant challenges for NATO uh, in decades. Um, There's also a lot more happening with uh, Finland and Sweden acceding to NATO. Uh, Just hours before recording this podcast, uh, we got news that Turkey has dropped its opposition, so the alliance will be expanding from 30 to 32 countries soon. Um, But the big news uh, for those of us who focus on Asia uh, is the historic attendance at the leader level uh, at this NATO summit by Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea 4 democracies uh, in the Indo-Pacific that collaborate in various ways among themselves and with the United States and other countries in the region that are now at the NATO summit. So that's really what we're looking at. Uh, so Katie, I mean, what's your, what's your impression here of the extent to which, you know, the summit is going to focus on Asia and of course, China, which NATO is expected to describe as a systemic challenge alongside Russia and its upcoming strategic concept. What's your, what's your take on this whole summitry that's happening in Madrid?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is important and and worth highlighting uh, the Asian leaders that are coming to NATO. You know, NATO is North America, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I almost said that wrong. And and you know it it has a European focus. It's a European body um, for all intents and purposes uh, with, with the United States. Um, so the fact that these Asian leaders are coming and having you know their own meetings with NATO and this sort of NATO Pacific focus really highlights the the China challenge that all of these countries see. And so there's certainly uh, synergies between. The, the leaders that are, are coming from Asia you, you mentioned the the Australian Prime Minister we have the Japanese Prime minister the South Korean president um, and the prime Minister of of New Zealand correct um and so you know the fact that they're coming all the way to Spain for for this NATO summit really I think highlights the the shared concerns that they have about Asia. They also, I think, have shared concerns about Russia, and those concerns are related. Um, I, I I'm interested to hear what you have to think about. You know, this sort of coming of Asia to Europe. Um, is, is this is this important?
0: I think it is. I mean, there's there's a lot happening here. Uh, first of all, I mean, I think you have uh, the security concerns that all of the states, the 30 member states of NATO, uh, and and the four Asian leaders attending. Uh, have about uh, the perception of a China-Russia axis or entente. I wouldn't call it an alliance for various reasons, of course. But mm. the alignment between China and Russia, I think, is is a is a much greater concern uh, for uh, everybody uh, as they meet in Madrid. Uh, like I said, NATO will describe Russia alongside China as a systemic challenge and frame the strategic concept accordingly. Um, NATO is also uh, for for a few years now taken an interest in China. Um, I believe, uh, you know, the first like that transition really happened in 2018 and 2019 as as NATO began to look um, eastward in in general as as sort of um, the, you know, the, the geopolitical gravity of the world started to really, I think, shift and US China relations in particular took a nosedive under the Trump administration. But the other thing that I think is going on here uh, is, you know, alliances are, are built on, on shared values. And I think there is um, a, a strong component here that at least the Biden administration, I think, would emphasize that these are like-minded democracies that support a rules-based order, uh, not only in Europe, but also in Asia. And so using the NATO summit as an opportunity to show that unity uh, is, I think, uh, another thing that many of these countries um, value uh, in, in the current context. Um, The Um, other thing I wanted to sort of get a sense of, uh, you know, is, um, or at least that I'm going to be looking for, uh, is how the two newer um, leaders, uh, which is Prime Minister Albanese and President Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea, use the NATO summit to sort of drop some markers for their thinking about approaching Europe. I think for South Korea, this is going to be a big moment, Yoon. you know, there's expected to be an announcement that South Korea will set up a mission, uh, in in Brussels uh, at NATO headquarters, full time, uh, and the UN administration is also working on its own Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think we'll get some markers for where this is going. Uh, what are some of the things you might be looking for here, Katie, on the sort of um, deliverable side or the outcome side uh, um, as well- leaders meet?
1: I mean, certainly, from looking at this, just from the, from the Asian perspective, because I think we could certainly talk about um, Ukraine and and get sort of distracted by that a little bit. But you know, when it comes to the Asian leaders that are there, I'm I'm most interested in sort of the outcomes of the planned meeting between um, Biden, uh, Yoon, and Kashida. Um, if my research is correct, it'll be the the first trilateral summit between the three leaders of that those countries since 20. 2017, I believe. Um, And so, you know, a lot has changed since 2017. Um, And so, and those are, I mean, last time these countries would have met in that format, you would have had President Donald Trump, you would have had um, Shinzo Abe, and you would have had, is Park still president? Moon Jae-in. Was Moon president? Okay, Moon was then to get my dates right, but you have you have a considerable change in sort of the political leadership of these countries since twenty since since twenty seventeen, and so I think it will be interesting to kind of set a baseline. You know, South Korean and and Japan. In these relations are not always the strongest, and so I think in that format will be interesting to see how the two newer leaders interact. Um, I know you're watching that that particular one. I don't want to steal your thunder. What do you What are you looking for in that that trilateral meeting?
0: Well, I think I, th- I think like you said, the fact that it's going to happen is going to be a big deal. Um, the Biden administration, I think, has a particular interest in trilateralism in Northeast Asia. Uh, they sort of see. Um, The departure of both President Moon and Prime Minister Abe as uh, and and Prime Minister Suga to some extent, uh, who was very close to Abe as uh, opening up new opportunities for a a reset of sorts. I think things still have a way to go. I think Japan in particular is still waiting to see... uh, just how quickly it can start uh, approaching the UN administration. But the fact that this summit is taking place in Madrid, I think, is, is again, a, a good sign. It sort of reminds me of, um, I believe it was in 2014, when President Obama brought together um, uh, then Pakken Hay and Shinzo for their first uh, meeting mm. as leaders in a trilateral summit on the sidelines of the Nuclear Security Summit in The Hague. And so maybe there's something about bringing Northeast Asian leaders to Europe that makes these kinds of trilateral interactions a little bit easier. But I think, you know, there'll be a big focus on Northeast Asia. There's a lot, um, uh, sorry, on on, uh, North Korea, uh, which has Mm -hmm. certainly been testing its fair share of missiles this year, raising concerns in both Korea and Japan. Um, And I think, you know, the statement overall that I'm expecting to see out of that will hopefully be forward looking with some specifics on on where the three countries might cooperate. Taking a step back, uh, you know, the NATO summit, I think, is is important. And I think we'll come back to it because uh, we're recording this right as it's about to kick off. But the thing I wanted to also sort of bring up uh, briefly was uh, the meeting of the G7 uh, in, in Germany. We just had a G7 summit. The G7 released a leader statement that if I'm I might be wrong about this, a listener should let me know. But I believe this leaders communique that was released at the end of The G7 uh, meeting in Germany mentioned China more than any previous G7 communique after a leader summit, uh, which, again, I think emphasizes the extent to which uh, these seven countries are particularly interested uh, in the China issue. A lot on human rights, on Hong Kong, East and South China Seas, rules-based order issues in general. Um, The big deliverable that I think we should talk about, Katie, is uh, the G7 uh, announced a new... um, a new uh, partnership for global infrastructure and investment, uh, which is going to be a $600 billion fund by 2027. That's the date by which the G7 plans to actually put this amount of money together. Uh, To support global infrastructure investments. And, you know, if if this sounds familiar to listeners, it's because it's not the first initiative of this kind uh, coming from the West. Uh, The EU announced its global gateway initiative, which was quite similar. And this is yet another attempt to sort of symmetrically compete with China and and China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative and and massive amounts of infrastructure funding at a time when I think a lot of lower income countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America are starting to get much more skeptical about uh, Chinese infrastructure investment funding. But um, any any thoughts from you, Katie, on on sort of the G seven and this and this infrastructure thing? I mean, is this is this going to be more of the same, or or is there a chance that the G seven might be able to um, pull this together in a way that might? Uh, actually give china a run for its money when it comes to um competing uh for uh for financing in in various countries around the world that uh, certainly i think uh will have demand for infrastructure funds
1: there's certainly a lot of demand for uh infrastructure funding from from developing countries around the world and and as you said increasing skepticism about chinese funding uh but the Chinese funding exists, and we'll have to see if this initiative can pony up the money. Um, because, you know, I, as you pointed out, there have been various efforts to sort of generate an initiative like this, and say, you know, we're going to fund this this number of things, um, this, this, you know, a large an- amount, but it has not Come to fruition in the way that Chinese BRI funding has, and so until the West can deliver the dollars, it's it's it remains on paper. And and so I think you know hope springs eternal. So maybe this this time this one will work out, but we'll have to see. Is the unfortunate answer is is there there is definitely demand um, and certainly. The, the West has a lot of expertise to 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 share and 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 funding um, to pony up, but the money actually has to to come together and get to countries and and development projects are not simple. These are not short endeavors, um, and once you start factoring in you know regulations and and uh, all of the environmental concerns for a given dam project or something, it it, it gets complicated. And so the initiative is a good idea. We'll have to see how it how it pans out uh, in in reality.
0: Yeah, and I think on that on that note, the White House statement on on the the PGII, as it's called, uh, says that uh, the United States will be announcing certain flagship projects, uh, and and some of these are sort of uh, described in a series of bullets. Uh, so there's projects that are happening in various parts of Africa, including a solar project uh, in Angola that's described. Uh, other other cooperation on sort of public health issues, vaccine development related to COVID-19 and other issues as well. So it seems that there's some meat on the bones here. But uh, yeah, you know, I think I generally agree that we'll have to see uh, where cooperation can actually manifest here. Before we move on, just wanted to quickly note that this episode uh, is brought to you by Quarterly Essay. Quarterly Essay is Australia's leading journal of politics, culture, and debate. Their latest issue, Sleepwalk to War, Australia's unthinking alliance with America, by Hugh White, explores Australia's fateful choice to back America to the hilt and oppose China. White assesses America's credibility and commitment by examining AUKUS, the Quad, Trump, and Biden. He discusses what the Ukraine conflict tells us about the future and argues that the U.S. can neither contain China nor win a war over Taiwan. For over 20 years, Quarterly Essay has been at the forefront of political discussion, publishing award-winning essays from outstanding writers, journalists, and commentators. Use promo code DIPLOMAT, all caps, to take 20% off an ebook or print copy of this original essay by Australia's leading strategic thinker. Read more at QuarterlyEssay.com.au. Okay, uh, back to our discussion it's interesting to see the g7 and the nato summits take place back to back i think again it's this moment that really shows the unity of the west in many ways the g7 of course being a much smaller group than nato six out of the g7 countries are nato members plus you have japan which is also present at the summit as we just discussed but i thought you know the optics of that i think are very interesting to sort of see this very high level focus the g7 of course again emphasized. uh, support for ukraine and its commitment to uh hold russia accountable and and to continue applying economic pressure on russia as long as it uh remains um in inside uh ukraine's borders uh the final piece that we can talk about and this i guess is a very summit heavy episode uh, is uh you know the sort of flip side to all of this western uh summitry with nato and the g7 which is the recently concluded virtual summit meeting uh of the bricks uh, right this is a group that might seem a little passe um just given the divergent economic trajectories of the five member states brazil russia india china and south africa uh The acronym BRICS, of course, coming from their names, Um, but I think the organization, you know, the five countries themselves, I think, would very much disagree just given uh, what they um, talked about. Uh, They released a a Beijing declaration, uh, China being the host this year um a lot in there i think you know chinese president xi jinping who 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 chaired the meeting had a lot to say about uh sort of systemic issues including sort of lashing out at the west for sanctioning russia india's presence i think in the brics again uh is is always interesting i think uh especially in the context of the scrutiny that new delhi has received over its position um with regard to russia's invasion of ukraine but the but the big thing i think is uh, of course putin's participation in the brics i mean this is the highest level leader-level engagement in a multilateral format that Putin has enjoyed since the invasion of Ukraine. And I think it really emphasizes the difficulty um, in, in totally isolating Russia, uh, because Russia continues to, of course, engage with not only the BRIC states, but a whole no, um, a whole group of countries around the world more generally, um, the other thing that's, I think, notable here is the BRICS appears to be on the cusp of expanding, which I don't know how they will do that just given that the group is fundamentally named around the five founding countries. Uh, but Argentina has expressed concern uh, uh, or has expressed interest in joining uh, as well as Iran, I believe, as of today. We'll have to see when, where that actually goes. But any, uh, any impressions from you, Katie, on, on the BRICS meeting?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, my my first thought um, as I was going through the uh, Beijing Declaration, um, you know, there's there's a lot in there, um, and to be a little bit cynical, you know, it reads like diplomatic documents usually read, which is like a laundry list of grievances concealed by nice language about cooperation. Um, you know, there are a lot of references to sovereignty, for example. Which reading reading those with Ukraine on the mind is sort of an interesting. You're not. that word doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, And so I find that kind of an interesting contradiction, which this sort of informs my next comment on the idea of expansion. So the BRICS was actually, was was originally the BRIC. Uh, South Africa joined, I think in 2011, was when South Africa started attending these meetings. But The BRICS doesn't have an institutional framework in the way that NATO or the EU or even the Shanghai Cooperation Organization does. It doesn't have a membership accession process. So I don't really know how the process for Argentina and Iran joining the BRICS would go. Uh, I don't know if it's as simple as next time they just invite them as members uh, as opposed to as guests. I don't know um it is also worth noting that this idea of expanding the BRICS is it's not novel this has come up before argentina in particular has expressed interest in in joining in the past Um, and i think some of the the pushback on that has always been you know we've got we've got the perfect number where we have like one country from each continent um or actually you know two but um i don't think I don't really know if iran and argentina will join and i don't really know what the value of them joining is to the organization or not um, but at this moment the value of the there is a distinct pr value for russia predominantly but also china in saying look people want to be part of our club mm-hmm. um, and and what that communicates and you touched on this and you said you know putin has had meetings with with leaders from around the world um since the invasion of, of Ukraine. So, you know, while I think the West would like to think Russia is extremely isolated, and, and certainly in economic terms it is, it's not as politically isolated. Um and so I think it is worth watching to see what what this uh BRICS expansion may or may not come to. But BRICS is not NATO. BRICS is not um The un it's it's not it doesn't have an institutional framework so it's a talk shop uh and so the these these countries might want to be a greater part of that discussion but the the argentine president also was a guest at the g7 um you know the the uh and so it's it's not so much an either or but but countries that want to participate more in global conversations um, see avenues to do so in those organizations. And so that's what they're pursuing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing here is that, you know, the BRICS, when they came together in the late aughts, were large emerging economies. And since then, I think their trajectories, the sizes of their economies, the extent to which they're sanctioned internationally in the case of Russia, all of that has changed. So I think it's it's sort of an organization that's uh, trying to sort of find its, its its contemporary relevance. I think you're right about the Beijing Declaration. There's, there's a lot of diplomaties in there uh, without mm-hmm. saying quite a bit. Although, you know, some of the remarks, I think, on uh, hegemony, power politics, uh, you know, sort of leave you with the optics uh, that, you know, this is a club that's trying to sort of set itself apart from, uh, you know, the other the other crew that we talked about in the first part of this episode, uh, which, uh, you know, you might call it sort of the rules-based order crew, uh, that, you know, the world is in perhaps some ways um, breaking into these two larger blocks. But I think, you know, your, your comment on... Uh, You know, Argentina, India, uh, even Brazil, I mean, these countries that continue to sort of forge their relationships with both groups, uh, seeking out opportunities where they might arise, suggest that there's still a lot more complexity uh, to this. And it's not just that the world is cleaving into two um, broader blocks more generally. Um, But uh, Katie, I think we'll leave it there for today. Uh, And uh, I think we'll have a lot to uh, revisit with the outcomes of the NATO summit. Let's see what happens, if there's any major headlines being made. But uh, thanks a lot for uh, joining me today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, please leave us a review. You can do that anywhere you get your podcasts. We really appreciate that. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.